Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is with us. John has been with us uh, quite often because he is uh, one of our sources for good insight into what's going on in the world, and uh, and particularly in the state of North Carolina. And so, John, welcome back to the program. Appreciate it. Is that all you're going to say? That's the shortest. That's the shortest speech he's ever made. Well, I I tried to avoid pentasyllabic terms as much uh, as I can. See, occasionally he uses words with which I am not familiar. <laughs> Penta he meaning may, he, five and syllabic meaning syllables. So I try to avoid five letter, five syllable words as much as possible. Well, I'm good because I don't even understand anything over three syllables. And, <laughs> and, uh, that's that's about my. That, that's it about is my true word. though that when I come when I when I know that I'm coming on your show, Don, it fills me with nicodonia. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Is that is that something you take penicillin for? Or? I probably should, but yeah. it's a word that means anticipation that something good's about to happen, like oh. you're about to win a game or something. Oh, okay. Well, that, I, I think that's good. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll check that out in a few minutes. Um, so anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on. Um, uh, there's so many things going on, and yet in many cases everything's sort of on hold. The General Assembly is in session. Uh, the budget has been presented. It's been uh, sort of referred back, I guess you would say. And so we're at a stalemate. What's going to happen with the, the budget, and how soon will that problem be solved? The state budget bill has always been the most important legislation that any General Assembly enacts. But in recent years, one might even say the last decade or so, a couple of decades, the budget bill is becoming so important because so many other things are inserted in it. If you can't get a bill passed on its own, you make it a provision of the state budget. So the, the budget has become harder in some ways to make deals about because you have so many different moving parts and policy matters embedded in it. Um, but generally speaking, governors and legislatures can work out budget conflicts because they can meet in the middle. You want to spend $500, I want to spend $1,000, we meet in the middle at $750. That's the kind of negotiation, unless your your party or your faction of your party is always in charge of everything, you have to ultimately negotiate out the numbers. The problem they've got with the state budget here in 2019 is that the governor, Governor Roy Cooper, is insisting not just that there be more spending in certain areas or less spending in other areas, that's negotiable. What he's insisting is that North Carolina must expand Medicaid as part of or as a condition for passing the state budget. And the, the problem that kind of negotiating stance puts him in and the legislature in is that expanding Medicaid is not a how much question. It is a yes or no question. The Republicans believe the welfare state's large enough. They simply don't want to expand it. They're a no. Cooper is at a yes. You can't meet in the middle. There isn't any way to halfway expand Medicaid. It's actually not a, not allowed. That option is not allowed under the federal law that the Affordable Care Act. So there's a stumbling block here, and it's taken weeks to see that it's going to take more weeks to fix, if any. And I think the problem that Governor Cooper has fundamentally is that he thinks he's in a strong position. The the Republicans lost the supermajorities they once had in the state legislature. They can't just override his veto with Republican votes. All of that's true, and that does strengthen his hand a bit. But at the same time, this is not like Washington. If there's no budget, that doesn't mean that North Carolina's government shuts down. It just means, under a previously passed law, it just means that the governor government continues. 
schools open, colleges open, departments do their business as normal with last year's funding. And that can last for a whole year, in theory. And frankly, some fiscally conservative Republicans would not be upset at that outcome. So Governor Cooper thinks he's pressuring them by saying, well, I won't sign this budget until you give on Medicaid. And their answer is, well, okay. Um, And so ultimately, the legislature here is in the stronger position. And furthermore, they can send whatever bills they want to to him on majority party line votes, including, and I haven't done this yet, Don, but they have run a stopgap bill that draws down some federal funds and does some things that budget bills usually do, and that will pass, and I assume he'll sign that or has already they, I think they will run a separate bill, done that just does pay raises for teachers and state employees, nothing else. They can do that if they want. Is Governor Cooper really going to veto a bill that just raises pay because he didn't get Medicaid expansion? I think he is ultimately in the weaker position. He will have to concede. Now, I recognize that they'll need a fig leaf or some kind of way, graceful way out. They probably ought to give him – they already gave him a committee vote on a Medicaid expansion bill. Maybe they'll give him some more – discussion or something like that or study commission or some kind of fig leaf so that he can back away gracefully but he is going to have to back away otherwise the legislature will run separate budget bills he if he keeps vetoing them it'll hurt him politically and hurt the state if he doesn't veto them there really won't be anything left to negotiate the budget will just never have the budget bill will never pass and they'll just have done most of what they want to do separately i think that governor cooper read the wrong message out of 2018 and thought he could shape the budget largely to his satisfaction and he just doesn't have that much power let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the key issue that you mentioned and that's medicaid expansion some states have done it some states haven't we're not the only one that but is. most states at this point have done it done that's, it. that's so, true so what are the pros and cons of of why we should or should not do the medicaid expansion as the governor wants Well, let's start with the pros. Remember that the Affordable Care Act created this category of Medicaid expansion, and the funding for the the enrollees under Medicaid expansion is much more generous than for regular Medicaid. Now, you might think this is, and I suspect this will not last in the long run, it's a little odd. If if the federal government's going to pay 90 cents on the dollar for fairly young people who have very few health problems who don't have children, so they're worth a lot to the state because the government's going to pay 90 cents on the dollar, but a disabled person, a blind person, a pregnant mom about to give birth, they only get 67 cents on the dollar from the federal uh, funding. That's weird, but certainly in the short run, it's financially attractive to many states. That's one of the reasons that they've taken it. Another argument is that there are people who can't qualify for, for Medicaid right now. They have incomes that are below the poverty line, but not low enough. And they don't have incomes above the poverty line, so they can't go into the federally funded exchanges and get a Affordable Care Act plan. And so they're in this coverage gap and expanding Medicaid at least up to poverty line, though that's not really allowed by the federal government. But expanded up at least up to the poverty line would fill a gap. There would be people who would have access to a health plan who previously who currently struggle to do that. Um, there's some other arguments that more Medicaid funding would help rural hospitals that are closely at margin, if any, in terms of uh, being viable. There's an argument it would boost the economy because that money would flow through and hire new people in the healthcare industry. The arguments against it are, as I said, there's sort of a general philosophical argument. The, government, the welfare state's too big. 
at least the caseload of people who are currently not in Medicaid aren't they're not sick they're not infirm uh, they're not disabled uh, that well, why should we add another class of people into government dependency there's also the problem that the, 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 the there's a debate about this but somewhere between a third and a half of the people who would get Medicaid expansion under what Governor Cooper is proposing already have health care coverage they already are in a pl employer plan or something, and getting Medicaid moves them from essentially some version of self-sufficiency and into private system, which is better, onto Medicaid. It's a very expensive way to reach the people who are truly uninsured, is the argument, because a lot of people who aren't uninsured would end up in Medicaid. There's also the argument that Medicaid, as it's currently structured, does not have a, unlike other welfare programs, it doesn't have a work requirement. So if you are capable of working, uh, and you want to get benefits, you don't have to have a job or show that you were looking for a job to get Medicaid. Some of the Republicans who want to expand Medicaid want to put work requirements and at least some modest premiums that people would have to share the cost of Medicaid to some degree. Cooper says he's open to a variety of options, but he really doesn't want that version of Medicaid reform. And the Democrats say that even if that happened, whenever they got in power, they get rid of all the work requirements and the Premiums. Well, the Republicans say, well, then why should we do this in the first place? We don't want welfare programs that are just handouts. So uh, the, the pros and cons here, as I just described them, there are many. They're interesting. I think the, another con would be there's no way the federal government can afford Medicaid expansion in the long run because it's already in massive debt. The reimbursement rate is bizarre and too rich. And eventually some future Congress and president will change that. States will end up shouldering way more than 10% of the cost of these enrollees. And so let's not buy this, uh, this sort of rosy scenario. It's not going to happen, and North Carolina taxpayers would suffer in the long run. So there's a lot of pros and cons, as I just described it. It takes a while to describe it because it's complicated. But as a political matter, I just don't think it's a big voting issue. The Democrats are convinced the public is demanding Medicaid expansion. Depending on how you ask the question, you can get – fair amount of people say they're in favor of it. I think a lot of those voters actually think you're asking them about Medicare, for example. It's, you want to be careful reading the polls. But it is not a main voting issue for swing voters. And so Governor Cooper is risking a lot on an issue that I assume he feels strongly about, but I don't really think is politically saleable, politically wise. Okay. So you've, uh, that's a very good explanation of the pros and cons. Uh, so what are we likely to see happen now? I don't think Medicaid expansion is, is in the immediate future for North Carolina. I, I would not like this outcome necessarily, but I do suspect that eventually Congress or somebody will address this problem by allowing states to add people to the Medicaid rolls if they're uninsured and if their incomes are below the poverty line, which would be a much more narrow shot than full Medicaid expansion. And I think North Carolina might take that deal at some point in the future. Uh, but right now, I just unless the legislature goes Democratic in 2020, I just don't see it. So you're saying you think we'll go a year without a budget? We might. But essentially, Don, we won't go a year without a budget because there, there's a budget already there, in there's place. There's a budget in place. They will amend yep. it slightly to do pay raises and so forth. And essentially, you will get maybe 90 or 95 percent of where you want to go without passing, quote, the budget bill. Don, we're used to hearing about budgets related to things like, well, we've got to keep up with enrollment yeah, growth. Yeah. There isn't any enrollment growth of consequence mm -hmm. in our state's schools and universities and so forth, so it's just not, it's not a pressing need. 
Our guest is John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation. We'll be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Some teens have trouble just making it to graduation. Like my brother, I was raising him. I was taking care of him when I was three, four years old. There was no possible way for me to come home, watch the kids, give them a bath, then cook dinner for everybody and clean and still get my homework done. So I would probably say with yeah. you because there's so many kids, kids that you yeah. have to you have to grow up real at fast, a young age, real yeah. fast. Yeah. Because I mean, if there's nobody there to do it, you got to do it. Like she said, you can walk down the hallway and see me. I just have a smile on my face. On the inside, I'm like really, really crying. I'm hurting because like, mm-hmm. well, how can I manage to do all this at such a young age? So it's a mind thing. You have to have your mindset that hey, if this is what you want to do, go for it. Find some more support and do what you have to do. Hopefully. I'll be able to study and be able to get my stuff done, but just not knowing what's going to happen in the future, that's what scares me, that I'm hoping that I'll be able to maintain my grades and stay in school. Give your friends the boost they need to graduate. Go to BoostUp.org and send a message in your own words. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. When we get old, will you take care of me if I can't get around anymore? Of course. We'll find a way. Are you going to take care of me if I can't see anymore? I'll read to you every day. And if one of us gets Alzheimer's disease, what then? Call 1-800-437-2423 for a free booklet on caring for your loved ones from Alzheimer's Disease Research. 1-800-437-2423. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is John Hood, who's with us frequently. He, he is uh, uh, a frequent guest on Tom Campbell's program, North Carolina Spin. He's also uh, a, a syndicated writer in uh, newspapers across the state and uh, has been a great source for us for getting uh, information about various and sundry subjects because we've always found John sort of looks at both sides always and uh, he, he, of course, is working for a think tank, and so he sits around and thinks all the day. Or that's what I'm told he does. I'm not sure yeah, what you do. I, the, there's, there's a big difference between appearing to think and actually thinking, and I, I, I'm more of an expert in the former than the latter. Well, I think uh, most of us are. <laughs> uh, I ask, uh, I've been asking guests recently – what their definition? We hear the term fake news all the time now. Everybody's talking about fake news, and so I've been asking people uh, on the show and otherwise, what is your definition of fake news? Because I can't seem to find any two people that seem to have the same definition. So, John, what is your definition of fake news? In my view, fake news is quite literally stuff that was made up that for which there are no sources for which there's no factual uh, verification. Fake news is not news you disagree with, that you don't want to hear. Fake news is not an opinion, okay? Uh, You could have a story that's too biased. You could have a story that has opinions in it instead of facts, and those will be objectionable. But fake news really needs to – I mean, I know this is going out on a pretty large limb here, Don, but I think fake news should be news that has been faked. So how much? I've, so I mean, but, but people keep putting titles to things that don't meet that definition. This is like the term politically correct. Okay. There's a lot of terms out there, and people want to throw them around. Political correctness was was originally a Marxist concept. You'd have communist ac- activists, 
and they would sort of test each other's orthodoxy. And so if someone strayed a little bit from the orthodoxy, they were politically incorrect and they need to be politically correct. Now, it was later applied to broader terms. And now people say, when, when I say, don't be obnoxious, don't be rude, don't be such a jackass. It's a perfectly fine word, by the way. It refers to a donkey. Don't do that. And they say, oh, you want me to be politically correct? I said, no, I just want you to be an adult. <laughs> you know? um, political incorrectness uh, and fake news are terms that are often used uh, in ways that are just pejorative. They, they're not really designed to inform anybody about anything. What was that last word? Pejorative. They're just attacks on somebody else. I, I, just, I just wanted to get that one in. I, you just sort of slipped that one in on me. Okay. Well, that's only a, a four-syllable word. I know. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed those. Okay. I can be perspicacious uh-huh. in my use of vocabulary because it's only four syllables. Okay. Okay. Sure, Wolf. <laughs> but that's Okay. Okay, so, okay, now let's move to what has been in the news this week uh, in a big sort of way, and that is the indiscriminate uh, shootings that we've had, um, which are just heart-wrenching uh, and uh, a major concern. And, you know, the one thing people want is safety. Uh, they want to be able to go to Walmart. <laughs> they want to be able to go to ball games. They want to be able to go to concerts and so forth and feel safe. And, of course, this is played in the hands of those who are uh, very strong advocates for gun control. Uh, There are others who say, wait a minute, it's the hate that's doing it, it's not the guns. There's, you know, this has been going on forever. But this is a major, major concern right now, and it probably will be an an election issue, uh, either just the safety issue or the gun control issue. So what, where do you see this going, and, and how long will this stay uh, to be a major problem? I don't, th- I don't see this going very well, uh, and I don't, think, I don't see it going in a good, good direction. I'm very frustrated by, by this entire set of political uh, performance art. Uh, these are horrible stories. People immediately jump to conclusions. They immediately try to force-fit something into a political mold. Should the president be more responsible when he's talking about immigration? Absolutely he should. Um, We have a white nationalist, apparently, go on a shooting spree in Texas. We had a proto-socialist left-wing disturbed young man go on a shooting spree in Ohio. In neither case are politicians whose ideas might dovetail with some of the shooters' ideas responsible for the actions of the shooters. This is pretty basic stuff. And so I'm really bothered by the attempt to politicize events like this. They also, by the way, give the shooters what they want, which is to be the top of everybody's you know, tip of everybody's yes. tongue. I mean, you, you be careful about that. The this other is, thing, uh, I'm going to interrupt yeah. here because I'm going to give an example it uh, for years people would go on the field of NFL football games or baseball games, either streaking naked or showing protests. And finally, the network said, "We're just not going to show it," and it's cut it out. Of course, it did. Yeah, you know, lots of sort of folk f- f- faux protesting would go away if the reporters didn't show up because it's just a, it's just mm-hmm. a, it is it is kind of fake news. It's manufactured news. Well, in this case, uh, another great frustration is the lack of connection between the gun control conversation and these events. Uh, of course, you're right. Every time there is a mass shooting, 
people immediately start reasserting their various positions on gun control. Here's the problem with that, is that the mass shootings, as far as I know, could not have been prevented by most of what anybody is proposing. Make the background checks more universal, including private sales among individuals. Well, as far as I know, little to few or none of the guns used in these mass shootings were acquired that way. Most of them were acquired perfectly legally, and people passed background checks, or their family members did. Are you going to say that a woman gets a background check and buys a gun and the husband's not going to have access to it, or the son? Of course they are. That's just that's just unrealistic. Similarly, um, most of the discussions about gun control that actually are relevant to significant use of guns really are about handguns and they ought to be about handguns Now, i'm not a gun control person but at least if you talk about handguns you're talking about something that's relevant to the vast majority of murders committed with a gun these are mass shootings are done with long rifles rifles that are owned by millions of people there are millions of these rifles in private hands today now in theory i suppose you could reduce or eliminate the risk of mass shootings by people who with shooting rifles by confiscating millions of rifles. The cost and the ima- level of police intrusion that would require is vastly more than anybody would, any rational person would put up with. It would never happen. They will never confiscate all these guns and all the, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of rounds of ammunition that exist for these guns. So that is a waste of time, in my view, a waste of time to talk about. What would be a much more productive discussion would be how do we keep guns out of the hands of people who have mental illnesses? How do we keep guns out of the hands of people who have you know, dangerously extremist views or essentially exhorting themselves and others to violence? It's worth talking about the red flag type law, something that would allow at least a temporary uh, dep- deprivation of a gun from someone when there was a family member saying, I think this person is dangerous. My son, my nephew, my neighbor has threatened to kill people. You know. I, for as long as there's due process and there, there's an appropriate system to protect rights, I think that is a reasonable conversation because you can imagine a policy like that might affect mass shootings. And my final point about all this is mass shootings are horrible and tragic. There was one, as you may recall, just, just some time ago at UNC Charlotte. It happened very near where my son goes to school and where his dorm is. Um, he and his friends were struck by it, shaken by it. I completely understand that. But gun violence as a overall social problem in America is declining. It's not going up. It's lower than it was a generation ago. We are not less safe from guns today than we were a generation ago. We are more safe from gun violence today. Now that's just a reality of the situation. That doesn't mean we ought not to take steps to address the problem. It doesn't mean these stories aren't horrific and tragic. But as a matter of evaluating the risk to public safety and taking appropriate cost beneficial steps there's just not very many rational conversations happening right now and i'm very frustrated by it well it's it's always interesting every time this comes up and i watch Gunsmoke on television the reruns and marshall Dillon, and of course everybody in the, the uh, long branch has a gun on yes them. 
and uh, from which time, tends to improve your manners. Yes. <laughs> so everybody's carrying a gun, and uh, so, uh, so one of my friends said, "You know, maybe the solution is for us all to be carrying guns, and then that might that might be a safer solution than what well." We in have. the in the Ohio case, there there was an immediate response, and I believe that shooter was gunned down within a minute or something. He still was able to kill a number of people. Oh. So I'm I'm all in favor of concealed carry laws and people arming themselves that they need to for self-defense. I am a Second Amendment defender. But I think we should be careful not to oversell even the benefits of defensive gun use, which, by the way, is very common. Most defensive gun use does not involve a discharge of a firearm. It involves brandishing. Your I am armed, leave me alone, is a defensive gun use that happens a lot. But anyway, uh, the problem is there are cases. There are people who are disturbed or have extremist ideologies. If they have access to a gun... In a free society, there is a great risk that there is a risk that they will be able to commit an act. And I would like to have narrowly tailored responses to that problem. Not we're going to do universal background checks, which is, doesn't seem to be relevant to the story, or we're going to go after all guns, all all you know the most popular rifle in the country and confiscate it, which is preposterous. Well, it's, it's certainly a, a – and it has always been a problem. Uh, I mean, this is not a new problem. This has been going on forever. And uh, uh, public safety is, of course, one of the things that government is clearly responsible That's its first for. and foremost responsibility. Exactly. So we'll watch that and see what happens. John Hood is our guest. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation. We have another segment coming up, and we're going to look at politics in the next section and uh, sort of decide – what and uh, what and or if uh, the Democrats will ever select a president uh, presidential candidate, uh, as well as uh, some more practical uh, views on the races that are up for uh, our consideration the next uh, next round of, of of elections, and we'll do that when we return with Carolina Newsmakers. I can help the next customer over here. Oh, thank you. Hi. Wow, that's a lot of books. Let's see how to keep your child safe, child proofing your home. Childproofing your yard. Childproofing your in-laws' home and yard. Well, I'm guessing you have a little one at home. Yeah. Well, it looks like you must take good care of her. Oh, thank you. Now, let's see. Parents' Guide to Safe Toys. That's a really good one. Parents' Guide to Safe Foods. Parents' Guide to Safe Safety Products. Parents' Guide to Parenting Guides. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and other safety tips. Of all the things you can read about keeping your child safe, the most important is attached to the back of their car seat. Read the instruction manual and learn to use the latch system. It makes it easier to be sure your child's car seat is installed correctly. Parents' Guide to Telling Other Parents How to Raise Their Kids. To learn more, go to safercar.gov. Anchor, tether, latch. The next generation of child safety. A message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. I'm not staying home tonight. I'm at school all day. If they want me to do the work, give it to me while I'm at school. This guy has me coming to work 10 hours a day. So what if I didn't finish school? That doesn't mean he could work me like a dog. Hey, man, I need a few bucks. My car's busted and I need some cash. Hello? Hello? Every decision you make has a benefit or a consequence. Make the right choices today and be ready for the challenges tomorrow. This message is brought to you by the United States Air Force. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. 
We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest. Uh, he uh, has been with us a number of times, and we've already had some very interesting conversation. We have not talked too much about politics yet. Uh, one of the things that is so interesting to me right now are these uh, 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 Debates between the uh, seventy-eight or eighty candidates. For, <laughs> how many is it? Uh, it's a couple of football teams or something. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's a uh, large number. It's a. This is one of the most interesting elections because I can't ever remember having uh, any situation where there are so many pr- announced candidates for any particular job. Well, I thought the 2016 pre- uh, Republican race that had so many candidates no. was was a high watermark with the Democrats actually have more announced candidates and I mean s- quasi serious ones people yes. who have yeah. who are current or former public yeah. officials uh, I, I do not agree with this individual at, on most issues uh, and I don't even necessarily think he's as polite and constructive as others some believe but I am just fascinated that Pete Buttigieg who's the mayor of a town in Indiana, is a major presidential candidate. I kind of find that charming, honestly. But anyway, um, I think that this is Biden's race to lose. He might lose it, but I think it is Biden's race to lose. And I think just like Trump enjoyed in 2016, if you're the front runner, even not by very much, you benefit tremendously when there aren't three or four opponents. There are you know, a dozen or two dozen opponents. That's very good for your situation. So, uh, yeah, we've started on this this process very early, or it seems to be early to me. Uh, do you think this is early for us to be looking at this situation? Well, you know, Barack Obama announced, didn't he announce in 2006, I think? I mean, Yeah, but there was only two or three candidates. Well, I know, but he announced early. I mean, we no. have seen early races. Even 1980, there was a fair amount of activity in 79 leading up to the 80 race. I think um, – yeah, I think one of the reasons it feels early is because so many people are doing it. If there were five or six candidates and they had started actively campaigning in, in 2019, that wouldn't strike us as out of character. But because, honestly, Don, the first primaries are just a few months away. It's really not that far well, away. Well, that, that, that's true. We're, we're not that far away from the primary season. Yes. And, that, and that's uh, – uh, we we tend to think of the election as being a, a year or so away, and it, and it is, but the primary season is not. And North Carolina is going to play a much more interesting role this year because our primary is later, and we have become a, a real uh, barometer, I guess. Yeah, we used to have a late primary. Now we have a March primary, yeah. and we, we will be a, a big chunk of votes. And people will want to campaign here not just because we're a big chunk of primary votes, but because we're in play, you know, they're, yeah. they're, Democrats want to win California for obvious reasons. But in the fall, they don't have to worry about it. In North Carolina, they want to win the, the primary vote to get nominated. But they also want to win the general election vote, which they're going to have to work for. So looking ahead, uh, you know, uh, the last election, there are a lot of folks that said that tr- Trump won North Carolina primarily because of the lack of support or the disinterest in Hillary Clinton. Uh, Taking that out of the issue, if Joe Biden had been the candidate last time, would would Trump have won North Carolina? I suspect he would have struggled to win North Carolina and the presidency if Joe Biden. I mean, I'm no big Joe Biden mm-hmm. fan, but he just doesn't have the visceral negative feelings about him that Hillary Clinton and the Clintons in general did. Um, I think that Hillary Clinton was the probably the only Democratic candidate who could have lost to Donald Trump. And she did in the in the key yep. states that tip tip the balance, and I think Donald Trump is the only Republican 
they could have lost Hillary Clinton. I truly believe no. that. Now, he didn't, but he almost did. So I think with that, you know, richness of horrible candidates in 2016 behind us, I think 2020, uh, Trump will have somewhat of a record to run on, which is probably better than just running as a celebrity business person, uh, though he also, his record is problematic and there'll be a lot of things people attack him on. And I think Joe Biden uh, and maybe one or two of the other candidates will simply match up a whole lot better with Trump than Hillary Clinton did, and I think Trump's going to struggle. But, you know, I'd, I wasn't convinced he was going to run in 2016, so I'm not sure my judgment is trustworthy on this subject. But uh, Biden simply does not at this point have the high negatives that Hillary Clinton did, and that was the main reason Trump won is because, as you say, because people were voting against a Hillary Clinton presidency. So looking ahead and uh, realizing it's uh, more than a, just slightly more than a year away, uh, so if the election were tomorrow, would Trump be reelected? I don't think so because I think he would not be able to pull Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And maybe North Carolina. And maybe North Carolina, but even if he won North Carolina, he'd still lose in yeah. that scenario. Uh, so I think it'll be hard. However, if Biden is the nominee but is driven so far left because of the drift of the Democratic Party that he is properly labeled an extremist, and or if someone other than Biden is nominated who really is genuinely a sort of a woke left-wing progressive – then I think Trump has a shot of winning. It's just not that's not where we are right now. I don't think that's the most likely scenario. I think Biden is the most likely nominee, and he will try to steer a center left course. And I think that's bad news for Trump. So looking ahead in North Carolina, of course, we uh, always have this redistricting matter in the background of all of our considerations. But uh, North Carolina's congressional delegation, uh, uh, of course, we're likely to pick up another. Uh, uh, after the uh, census, we're likely to pick up another yes, seat, yep. and that will that will definitely cause another redistricting one way or the other. Uh, so, where where does North Carolina go next uh, next time around, and uh, uh, how does uh, Roy Cooper face uh, his challenge of getting himself reelected, and so if forth? If the Democrats nominate Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or God help us all, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Cooper's going to be in trouble because no Democrats are going to have a hard time being on a ballot with those candidates. I really believe that's the case. Oh. On the other hand, if he's on the ballot with Joe Biden, then it'll be more of a Cooper against whomever kind of a race. And Cooper is not in bad shape there, though I would I would point out his his negatives are low. Not that many people really, really want to get rid of Roy Cooper right now. But something like a fifth to a quarter of North Carolina voters don't have really much of an opinion about Cooper at all. And he's not a very high-profile person. He never has been. So it is possible the Republicans could define him, given his position, some of the positions Cooper has taken, uh, much more left than he ran in 2016. And you could have a scenario where Trump narrowly wins North Carolina and Roy Cooper loses. Uh, I think that could happen, depending upon circumstances. So where, where do we stand on redistricting, and how will that affect the next election? Well— we still have litigation. I, I, you know, I try to keep up with it, but I'm confused. It, you ought to be confused. Well, I am. Um, we've had a series of maps thrown out, congressional and legislative, on excuse me, Federal Voting Rights Act grounds, um, essentially racial gerrymandering grounds. Now, there's an argument that they shouldn't have been and back and forth, but let's set that for, aside for a second. 
The current challenges are not about race. They're about party, about partisan gerrymandering. There was an attempt to strike down North Carolina's congressional map, current congressional map, in federal court because it violated the standards that should be applied. The U.S. Supreme Court said no by a five-to-four decision. They said this is not a matter that is justiciable by federal courts. And that's not the same thing as saying state courts couldn't intervene. In fact, they specifically cited state courts or state constitutional amendments or state reforms as alternative solutions other than having the federal courts intervene. Um, So what's happening now is a lawsuit that's currently in the trial court stage challenging North Carolina's legislative maps as a violation of the state constitution because the argument is they are gerrymandered to favor the Republicans. Um, I'm not sure that's going to work either in the short run, but it might. that argument might prevail in a North Carolina Supreme Court ultimately that is a six-to-one Democratic court. I personally believe, I've advocated for decades, that we should reform North Carolina's redistricting process to put some guardrails on it, make it much harder to manipulate the maps in favor of one party or the other. I have hopes that that reform will pass in the next few months, that it will be enacted, that it will pass the House. I hope it will pass the Senate. What I'm proposing, what I support is a constitutional amendment. So it would go in front of the voters, and the voters would decide it in March. And if they said yes, uh, it wouldn't. this particular provision wouldn't be a, a, a legislative com- or a nonpartisan commission drawing the maps, which could be challenging to get past or challenging to, to work right. What it would do is put in the Constitution criteria that would constrain maps drawn by the legislative staff, the nonpartisan legislative staff, uh, make it very hard to gerrymander one direction or the other. I think that's the right decision. I think Republicans may view that ultimately as in their self-interest. They don't know who's going to win in 2020. Maybe there is a Republican wipeout. The Democrats take the legislature. Do they really want the other side to draw the maps? Um, do they want the state Supreme Court to intervene and draw maps? I, I think there's an argument that both sides ought to take out an insurance policy, a political insurance policy, against a catastrophic loss, which is that the other side will gerrymander them. All insurance policies cost money, Don. You know this. You've yeah. probably paid them before. <laughs> so you do pay a little bit in order to get a con- protection against yeah. catastrophic loss. In this case, the Republicans would have to give up a free hand in drawing maps or a freer hand that they wouldn't have the free hand they currently have. I think that's a price worth paying to avoid having the other side, if you're a Republican, take over and gerrymander you, or vice versa. And one of the things that's always interesting to me is that uh, the uh, Democrats have all uh, always said, uh, yeah, and by the way, uh, we are uh, critical of what the Republicans are doing, but by the way, I think we did the same thing. Uh, well, so, they clearly did the same uh, yeah. thing. The worst, jury, the worst gerrymanders I ever saw were not by the Republicans. They were after the 2000 census when the Democrats came up with maps that would have given them control of the legislature, even if Republicans had gotten vastly more, significantly more votes than the Democrats consistently. That was struck down by state court because yep. uh, it violated state constitution, but it violated a specific provision. I think that's different from the litigation we see right now. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out because it will definitely have an effect. And I think it's a good effect, and I, this is the only comment I'm going to make about it, because one of the things I like to see is contested races because that's when issues get discussed, and uh, that's always good and always welcome and always in the public interest, I think. That's my political – That's I'm going to editorialize. I, I agree with you, yep. though people need to be realistic. Yep. More competition means you agree higher with expense. Me. You agree with me? I do. Gee, 
That does mean that the races will be more expensive if they're more competitive, but I'm okay with that. Okay. John Hood is our guest, and we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. From all walks of life and in nearly every corner of the globe, Habitat for Humanity volunteers come together to share their time and their hearts with families in need. Men and women, young and old, the experienced and the beginners. And while they are all different, they are also all the same. They are all builders, dreamers. Through determination and perseverance, in the heat and the cold, in the early dawn and sometimes late into the night, together they offer new hope and an opportunity for a better life, working side by side with Habitat Partner families. Together we can eliminate substandard housing. Won't you join us? Support Habitat for Humanity in your hometown or wherever your heart leads you. Volunteer, get involved, and help build it. Visit us at Habitat.org. You've got your shades on, do you? So cool, so hip, so sheltered by frames of UV protection to show the world you are a force. But did you also know by wearing sunglasses you're doing your eyes a favor? That's right, sunglasses help avoid overexposure to the sun, which can produce red eyes, a feeling of grittiness, even excessive tearing. But you, oh master of the incognito, are taking care of your eyes without even knowing it. For more easy ways to keep keeping your eyes healthy, see your optometrist or visit AOA.org. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest, and we've had a very interesting discussion on all sorts of issues, including the uh, mass shootings and the uh, political situation that uh, the state is uh, getting ready to get involved with as far as our upcoming elections. And we've also talked about a number of other issues, including the state budget. Uh, I'd like to remind you that this program comes in two segments. Uh, uh, A number of the stations carry a half-hour version. That means two of the segments that we carry on the one-hour version are not heard by those. So if you'd like to hear those segments, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those two segments. Or if you'd like to share the broadcast with a friend. Or if you'd like to go back and hear some of the ridiculous comments John Hood's made on his numerous other Please do not. <laughs> do not determine whether my prediction, my past predictions were correct. That violates the, the implicit contract we have with our listeners not to hold us responsible when we say ridiculous things. Well, uh, as, as we all do from time to time, um, it's uh, – Interesting to go back and uh, uh, from time to time look at correspondence that you've sent to other people and said, did I really write, <laughs> did, did I really write that? Uh, so anyway, so uh, John, we are uh, uh, sort of wrapping up things here for this particular program. Uh, anything pending at the legislature of great interest that uh, has yet to be decided? Well, we've talked about the state budget and the related matters, which yeah. is the most important thing, and redistricting, which I think is a, is a pending matter. Another one would be, what are we going to do about health care delivery in North Carolina? We do have pressure on hospitals, rural hospitals. We have, on the other hand, we have significant controversy about hospitals and their billing practices and how transparent they are. Lots of people very upset about suddenly getting bills that seem out wildly out of whack and the hospitals being defensive about it. We had this conflict between, or continue to have a conflict between the state treasurer, Dale Falwell, and the hospitals about the amount of reimbursement that hospitals are going to get under the state employee health Where is plan. that going? Well, 
I don't know. That is something that's going to have to be a sort of a numerical compromise. But there's a yes or no question embedded in that, which is should the pricing that hospitals have under the state health plan be transparent? Should the state treasurer have access to the specifics of the contracts? The hospitals are saying no way. Falwell is saying I must have that. I'm the elected official that has fiduciary responsibility. And that's that's a hard thing to compromise on. You can compromise on the reimbursement rate. I want to do 200%. I want to do 250%. Well, we'll do 225%. But the other is a difficult thing. I hope they work it out. I think they should figure out some solution that provides more transparency um, that hospitals can live with. So um, I I, I got you off on that subject, so get back to where you were. Well, that is a legislative matter, though, because there's a bill that has passed one chamber, the House, I think it is, but hasn't passed the Senate that would basically stop the treasurer from trying to implement his pricing model with with hospitals and set up a study and basically kick the can down the road a little bit. And if that passes, that would, for the short run, resolve the conflict against what the treasurer wants to do. Um, So that's a live issue. And I think more generally, how much more competition should we allow in the medical marketplace for companies to come in, doctor practices to come in and compete with the existing practices? We have a, a, a rather... I hate to use this term, but it's a sort of a Bolshevik approach to managing hospitals and doctors. All you have to have permission slip from the government to open up things. That is a bad way to run any kind of economy, uh, economic model. I think we've got to get out of that business, and that is a, another live issue in front of the legislature right now. The hospitals are getting hit from all sides, and I understand that. But this issue of may, having the state give them monopolies or quasi-monopolies in certain areas We've got to resolve that. That is inconsistent with our market system. It's inconsistent with consumer choice and preference. And it doesn't save any money. It probably increases the cost. Because of the recent uh, shooting sprees that we've had, which we all know are very tragic and very concerning, uh, do you think the General Assembly in the state of North Carolina will attempt to uh, enforce or enact legislation that would provide more public safety? I think that the only bill that could move at some point might be a red flag type of bill having to do with people who, for whom there is a family member or co-worker or something that has specific information that might lead to a temporary revocation of that person's possession of a firearm or access to a firearm. It's care, it's da- it, you have to be very careful with that bill to make sure you don't trample on a constitutional right. But I do think there could be some reasonable approach to that. I think that's about it. Most of the other things that are proposed in the gun control space just don't have very much to do with the mass shootings. They wouldn't have prevented them. They're just somebody's popular, you know, somebody's pet idea, and they just put it on the table every time there's a shooting. And I think that's not very helpful. And we discussed in great detail earlier uh, the uh, the item, the single item that is really, really holding up the uh, the uh, approval of the budget, the Medicaid expansion. Um, you gave us a great outline of the pros and cons of that issue. Uh, so uh, do you see uh, any movement on that whatsoever? Well, I think that where you could get bipartisan agreement is on doing some things on the delivery side – doing some things that are within the existing system that would improve access for people to low-cost care. Things like providing, you know, there are some rural areas where there aren't very many doctors and the hospitals are struggling, and there needs to be nurse practitioners delivering some primary care, but there's some limitations on that. 
So you got an uninsured person or someone that doesn't have very much of a health plan. They could afford to go see a nurse practitioner, and they really couldn't afford to go to other providers, and the, the, the MPs do a great job. I think those are the kinds of solutions to actual health care access problems that you could get bipartisan support for. I hope so. Do you see the uh, new candidates coming out uh, as, as uh, potential uh, candidates to either oppose Roy Cooper or on the Republican side for well, governor? Well, there is a Republican. We know Dan Forrest, the lieutenant governor, is running, and we know that Holly Grange, a state representative from the Wilming area, to, Wilming area, said she's going to run for governor. So you've got at least two candidates. Uh, if it's just Holly and Dan, that will be a competitive primary. Uh, Dan, of course, has been elected statewide. I think he would have an advantage, but he would face, he would have a spirited primary challenger. So it's going to be an interesting year. I think it's a fascinating year, and down the ballot, there will be competitive races for council of state, for judgeships. Uh, a number of legislative races will be competitive again. The, the maps aren't gerrymandered to the extent there aren't competitive races, because there are. Uh, and there will be some more in 2020, and the Democrats could gain, or the Republicans could regain some of the ground they lost uh, two years in the 2018 cycle. Well, Tom Campbell on North Carolina Spin always ends his program by saying, tell us something that we don't know. I like that. That's a good feature. Uh, usually it's uh, uh, only a sentence or two, so you can take a little bit longer wow. to say, uh, to tell us something that we don't know that we probably ought to know. The most important political unanswered question has nothing to do with 2020. In North Carolina, in my opinion, the big sort of story is the jockeying for position for 2022's Senate race. It will be an open seat. Richard Burr's retiring. Yeah. We don't have open seats very often. Look look out, because there's going to be a long list of D's and a long list of R's and maybe some others getting into that Senate race, including familiar names, including members of our congressional delegation, um, former governors, perhaps. I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of jockeying for position on 2020 that really has to do with people setting themselves up for a run at an open Senate seat in 2022. Okay. That's something we didn't had not contemplated, that you would say. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another interesting guest for us next week, or so he says. He promises me that every week. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I look forward to seeing who we'll have next week, and I hope that you uh, out there in Radio Land will join us. Uh, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear that. Uh, as I said, our program has been produced by Jason, and he's done a good job. And we will look forward to seeing you again next week. So till next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.